welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this show is recorded live on June 19th, 2009. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. As folks will remember, we're now doing the show live on TalkShoe Friday nights, 8pm Pacific, every other Friday. And the easiest way to get the call-in information is to go to biota.org slash podcast and that will give you the information with regards to calling in the show. It will give you the information with regards to the live chat. The previous Biota Lives, the chat has just been on fire through TalkShoe. I think we've made the right decision moving over to TalkShoe because we get a number of chat participants through and we have one in the chat already. Um, I'm hoping this evening to have Gerald DeYoung and William R. Buckley on but there may be others that call in as well. The next episode on July 3rd, Artificial Life and Nationalism. This in part is inspired by the book Wired for War, which contains a, an interesting discussion associated with Rodney Brooks, iRobot Company and the assistance of the military and these kind of things. And it also gives me the wonderful opportunity to play the 4th of July version of the uh, Biota Live theme. So uh, next episode, July 3rd, uh, Friday, 8 p.m. Pacific, Wired for War. So I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, Brian Pelton and a, a late shout-out with regards to the birth of his daughter, Fiona. I heard from Brian this week as I'm attempting to record the visions of the Evo Grid, and I'd like to get Brian's feedback, obviously, that uh, he and his wife had a, a daughter, Fiona, in January of this year. Um, so congratulations out to, to Brian. News associated with Biota 5. Well, um, I think Dick Gordon Swamp currently probably working on a new book. He seems to have a a book out every other month. Uh, But the news with regards to Biota 5 is 2011 uh, at the University of Manitoba, where Dick Gordon is based. Three tracks was described previously, Origins of Artificial Life, which carries on with Bruce Damer's Evo Grid-related discussion and probably A-Life 1, uh, sorry, A-Life 12, uh, as it's going to occur. Artificial Life Perspective in the Dialogue Between Science, Philosophy and Religion, which obviously carries on from Dick Gordon's book, and Bridging the Gap Between Artificial Life in Industry, Academia and as a Hobby with a Game Subtrack. I've announced this in the previous Biota Lives, um, and I think as the time gets closer, Dick will be uh, no doubt contacting the community and, and soliciting assistance with regards to that. But I want to put the announcement out there that we are actually planning a Biota Conference on a personal note, in the middle of September, I'm going to be attending uh, Greytham Silicon Valley. This is going to be the first trip that I've had uh, with the new job, so it'll be wonderful to uh, get out and meet a wide variety of folks who I've only ever, you know, communicated with through this very podcast. I hope to meet people such as Jeffrey Ventrella, Zan Gill, uh, Bruce Damer's videographer, Al Lundell, a wide variety of folk um, who have participated, obviously, Scott Davis and Scott Schaefer. I mean, the, the folks who uh, who attend the Grayson Silicon Valley, you know, these are people that I've been in some form of communication with for a number of years now. And I think, uh, on a personal note, it may actually be quite a moving experience <laughs> to finally put, uh, you know, faces to names and names to faces and particularly voices. Um, I'm interested in some feedback, actually, from the community about what they'd like to see me speak on. One of my thought was originally was to do three 20-minute talks on uh, aspects of the biotic community in Noble Ape. I'm getting very heavily back into ApeScript, which is the scripting language associated with Noble Ape. And, uh, you know, it would be wonderful to be able to do a demonstration to that, uh, for that at SRI, um, potentially the Noble Ape cognitive simulation. 
I think we have Gerald Jung in the chat. Um, Gerald, are you are you able to call in, or are you having problems calling in? I had some problems calling in, so I'm not sure if Gerald's having problems or whether he'll come on the chat shortly. Anyway, I'll uh, I'll move back to uh, my time in the Bay Area in a minute when Gerald's on the call. Uh, but I, I'm asking for feedback with regards to the visions of the EvoGrid series. Uh, we had Natasha Vitamore on last week. There were a number of folk in the chat room. Unfortunately, I don't follow the chat through the, the visions part of the uh, recording. I do via Bios Live, but not through the visions because I like to concentrate on the guests. Now, important part with regards to the Natasha Vitamore conversation um, there was all, probably 20 minutes in the centre of the, the conversation that I actually cut from the recording, primarily because she was really interviewing me more than I was uh, talking to her. It was quite curious. My wife came home halfway through and thought that I was actually being interviewed rather than me talking to Natasha Vita Moore. So what I've done uh, is invited Natasha back onto her bio to live so other folks in the community can can answer some of her questions and also ask her some questions, I think, the general feedback that I got from that particular vision to the Evo grid was that there were, uh, you know, a number of additional questions that people had, and I hope to have Natasha on a bio to live in the near future in order to jam with her more and certainly have folks in the community uh, call in and, and participate as well. I looked at the uh, podcast numbers recently. These are actually the download numbers associated with the podcast, both via the site and from iTunes and from a wide variety of sources, and... Um, the numbers seem to have decreased quite dramatically. I'm not really sure what that is, uh, you know, related to. There had been some problem with regards to downloads from uh, Chinese uh, audio search sites, which I think has hit all podcasters, and now they've dropped off. I think I've heard reports from a number of podcasters that their numbers have decreased. But I'm wondering, and this is feedback that I really need from the community, I'm wondering if people have just reached a degree of saturation with regards to the EvoGrid-related discussion. I kind of have some concern that people may be either just, you know, less interested in talking about it or would much rather hear from folks such as Gerald and myself and, and others in the community with regards to our own specific projects. And certainly I'm relatively receptive to that. Um, so if people are actually interested in, in hearing more from us, so to speak, and less on the EvoGrid, please do give feedback. I think what will probably happen is the visions of the EvoGrid series will slow down a little and we'll probably have more uh, traditional biota-related discussion coming through the podcast and also new discussion. I mean, if you have topics or directions or areas that you'd like to see the podcast go in, uh, you know, please feel free to, uh, you know, submit questions or topics or actively participate, uh, more importantly. So uh, Biota Eve, this project was started off in some regard as a spin-off of the Evo group, but I like to say historically it's actually been discussed in the Biota community since the late 90s. So, so far we've had contributors from uh, Gerald de Jung with his Darwin at Home XML phenotypes, Bion Noble 8 XML phenotypes, and Scott Schaefer's Micropond uh, XML phenotypes. Well, this week we had some correspondence with Dave Kerr. Now, Dave Kerr is a, a name in the community. If folks who've listened to the podcast series prior to Biota Live will remember Dave Kerr's nature, N-A-I-T-U-R-E, or AI Planets. I mean, Dave Kerr has been developing artificial life for well more than a decade now, and it would be wonderful to have him back on a Biota Live. However, he is um, he's considering submitting an XML phenotype, and I think when... When Dave starts getting involved in particular, uh, it will, uh, you know, it will uh, no doubt uh, 
be something the community can benefit from, particularly with regards to just having an additional simulator. If you are an artificial life simulator, I really would encourage you to actively participate in the Biotary project. It's kind of on a, a slow simmer currently. I think that's the nature of these things, that they just go through uh, various fluxes. Um, but, I mean, Biotary in particular is something that the community has been talking about for uh, well more than a decade now. So, you know, it's something that I think, uh, you know, the more the merrier, although I'm sure with the three existing, possibly four or five future contributors, uh, we'll be able to generate something. And that's, you know, half the real issue with regards to actually uh, getting these simulations uh, communicating. Hello? Hello, there, Tom. Good to speak to you, Gerald. How are you this morning? Very good, although it is a little early. Yes, I'm sorry. That, um, I mean, I was thinking that we sh should try recording at other times as well. However, this Friday night seems to fit in um, you know, relatively easily with my schedule. And also, uh, Peter Newman in Australia has been saying that he'll call in uh, at one time. So I think we may have to split it up just to make it a little easier for you folk. Oh, we've got Peter Newman on the chat. Speak and he appears. So, hello, Peter. Please consider calling in if you're interested. Um, the contact details should be in the chat-related stuff too, Peter. It would be wonderful to have you on the discussion, particularly to talk about your current developments with the Evo Grid. So, Gerald, I mean, I'm, have you had a chance to listen to the Natasha Vita Moore visions of the Evo Grid yet? Oh, yeah, listen to that. That was, uh, was a good show. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, in terms of EvoGrid saturation, you've been an EvoGrid naysayer, but you've also been quite interested in the kind of continued discussion. Do you think we're currently oversaturating the audience with EvoGrid-related stuff, or would you like to see more? Um, well, it depends on uh, what. Like uh, I said last time, the, um, the uh, I'd like to see eventually something, something realized in some form or other. So... Uh, I want to get into the engineering of it. So, uh, is there any uh, if there's any opportunity to discuss that, then uh, I'm into it. Well, that's really uh, Peter's forte. So, um, well, Peter, Peter's asking. He doesn't even know what we're talking about this evening. Peter, if you call in, we will talk about whatever you want to talk about. How does that <laughs> sound? Well, Peter is the primary engineer of the EvoGrid currently. I mean, he's the one who's running the chemical simulations and giving, you know, giving direct feedback to Bruce. So, I mean, really, uh, it'd be wonderful having Peter on the call this evening just to have a chance to uh, to chat specifically about what he's doing and how this fits into the kind of broader EvoGrid-related uh, discussion. So, Peter, if you want to call in, we'll certainly take your call. But... Um, I mean, as you were listening in, Gerald, I'm going to be flying to the Bay Area in mid-September to do one of these Graytham presentations. It seems quite ironic because I was promoting Graytham prior to even, you know, Graytham Bay Area, these kind of things. If you were to see me give a talk, what would you like to see me give a talk on? You mean related to the Evil, evil Grid or just anything Tom Barbalay? Anything. Anything Tom Barbalay. Hmm, okay. Uh, let me see... Um, I think I'd uh, I'd want to see uh, uh, an uh, I'd like to, oh yeah I know what I'd like to do I'd like to give uh, I'd like you to give a, a code based tour of uh, Noble Ape oh yeah so we just point out particular sections and uh, and describe uh, how they uh, how they actually function and stuff like that 
So I was thinking of doing that as a video podcast anyway. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, I was also I was also looking to uh, eventually I would like to do some sort of um, sort of online publication that that is in a very friendly form. And and on the one hand, and I've done stuff with video before. But um, actually, what I'd like to do, I think preferred medium would be something like, uh, um, I've seen these things where you've got a sort of audio and a slideshow, and, I, and if you can put that online. Uh, I think it costs money, though, so I haven't really looked into it uh, in depth, but that would be the kind of thing to have, where you could you know, show certain images and then even jump into uh, sections of the code while you're listening to audio. I don't think it necessarily requires you and me to get into the into the views you know to be filmed directly <laughs> certainly i i had to i'm not sure if you saw on the noble eight site but um a couple of computers ago i did attempt to do that with a kind of tight zoom on uh ape script code and me doing um very patchy voiceover yeah but, this, this sort of thing is ideal i mean we've got to make more media like this because uh it turns out to be so much more accessible for uh, for new people. You know, if you, if you can just stumble across a video, then uh, then suddenly it all comes to life really quickly. I was thinking. I mean, I'm exploring wikis currently, and one of the features I like is embedded audio in wikis. Do you think it could almost be like a a kind of tour guide of the source code, where you clicked on audio links and then you got you know an explanation associated with the various bits of source code? Do you think that would work? That sounds pretty good, actually. Never, never thought of that uh, embedded chunks of audio, but that's that makes some sense. Hmm. Okay, you've got me sounds, thinking. It sounds, it sounds easy to do as well. That's uh, one of the advantages. Yeah, my wife's going to Southern California for Father's Day, so I've got the house to myself for a, a couple of days. So um, I'll certainly think about that, Gerald. I think that's a good idea. So, hey, Tom, I, did you did you uh, did you hear that, uh, or did you see on Twitter that I've uh, called another Gratham meeting in Holland? Oh no, I didn't see that. Please announce it. Yeah, well, um, I've uh, for I just uh, sent an, uh, an email to the mailing list of the Great Home Netherlands, uh, and just out of the blue, because um, because I wanted to, uh, I've been wanting for quite a while now to set up another meeting, but I really didn't have a a good enough theme for it because I'm I'm tired of being the uh, Preacher of Darwin at home as you know, sort of the main attraction. We did that once, and uh, and then actually again, sort of. But there are other people, of course. Uh, but you know, I'm always I always tend to uh, give my story again, and, and uh, you know, it's not uh, actually it's not a bad idea. It's just that it's not progressing uh, terribly quickly at this very moment because I'm doing too much work. Um, but uh, soon it'll start picking up, and then it might, it'll be worthwhile because then I'll have more new things to see, to show. But um, actually, from uh, uh, attending Dick Gordon's course uh, last week, where William Buckley, or it wasn't last week, it was a couple of weeks ago, where William Buckley uh, presented his uh, or presented uh, us this program called Golly. Have you ever heard of that? Certainly, certainly, yes. And um, he was. Um, he was showing us some really interesting things and, and talking about them in the context of the embryo physics course. And suddenly uh, it occurred to me that this Golly program was really cool and it'd be really good to have a Gratham meeting to sort of focus on that program. And, and I've, I haven't actually filled in the details yet, but I'd like to even do a sort of a workshop where we all, uh, where everybody brings their laptop and, and we just uh, we play around with things and 
and uh, people show stuff. And as a result, um, because I was, uh, I, I proposed immediately a date, which was the 3rd of July on a Friday, and a location, which is my office uh, overlooking Rotterdam. Wonderful. And, and so, um, and, and also the program that, uh, that, that we're going to take a look at it, and, and finally it wasn't me again. So, um, you know, it, was, it all just came together, and everybody's replying back with, sure, that'll, that'll be great, I'll be there. And uh, right now there's already nine attendees, and there's probably sure. going to be a few more. Very good. And I think yeah. this is the true origins of Grace. Um, I mean, certainly if you talk to, you know, Adam Aramenko and, and Brian uh, and, you know, these kind of folk, John Klein, I mean, the origins of Grace on Boston prior to the formalized meetings in some regard was, as you say, these kind of coding afternoons and evenings where they get together and I think that's the origin of um of uh, nanopond or micropond um from yeah, and, and here uh in the Netherlands we haven't done that yet really we've had uh, two Graytham meetings but they're both in the form of sort of a presentation uh, or several presentations and uh, and this is uh, this is going to be different because we can all sort of sit around the same a uh, nice long table, and uh, we can uh, share a video screen in the form of a, a television that you can hook up to your uh, laptop. You know, it's a table where we can all sit around. So I'm looking forward to having some really interesting discussions and exploring that uh, Golly program a bit more. By the way, Golly was really, uh, it looks like it's been really uh, carefully written to be uh, efficient at, at doing uh, sort of game of life things. And, uh, uh, that seems to be able to do quite impressive, uh, impressive models. So, as tends to be the case, we're being asked from the chat room to give an introduction of ourselves. Um, Gerald, do you want to introduce who you are? Sure. My name is Gerald De Young, and uh, I'm living in the Netherlands, although I'm originally Canadian. Um, my uh, claim to fame in this context is my project called Darwin at Home which uh, is something that's been going on for a good number of years, more than 10. And um, at the moment, it's evolving towards, if I can use, if I can overuse the word evolve, it's uh, evolving towards uh, becoming an evolution game. Uh, and I haven't been able to spend too much time on it recently, but I expect, uh, I'm going to force myself at least to uh, make some sort of a release of a first version at the very least sometime this year. Of course, this is a part-time activity. And um, the idea is to uh, sort of build a community of people who like to uh, play around with, uh, with evolution and see if I can, uh, see if I can, I can expand it and, uh, and get people understanding evolution as a result of playing a game. And in terms and of the context of Biota, who are you? Yeah, well, I've I've uh, known Bruce Damer for 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 quite some time, for ages actually, and uh, we meet every uh, every few years when we're uh, in a similar geographic location. I just uh, happened to have encountered him recently in London uh, when I uh, when he was uh, he was there, and I happened to be there as well on a on a vacation. So that was uh, was wonderful. It doesn't happen frequently, but uh, when we meet, it's always good. And um, I attended the second and the third Biota conferences in uh, Cambridge and then in San Jose and participated in both of them. And uh, this was uh, a really exciting uh, period. 
Um, yeah, and, and I've been in the on the Biota Live podcast a number of times, and I have my own podcast at darwinathome.org. And my name is Tom Barbelay. I'm currently speaking to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. I've been developing a project called Noble Apes since 1996, although a number of the ideas predate it. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm the current editor of the uh, Biota website, and Bruce used the term director to describe me recently with regards to this whole biota thing, and I thought it was a, a bit overdone, but um, that's the short answer of who I am. Similarly, I have a website, nobleape.com, uh, and biota.org will get you information on, on Gerald and uh, my work and related uh, you know, web links and other stuff, so that's the place to go. So the topic this evening, Gerald, came to me in correspondence with Mark Badeau, and following Mark's appearance on um, Biota Live, he contacted me and asked me to kind of summarise my thoughts with regards to the problems in contemporary artificial life and what we as artificial life developers could do in terms of planning and strategising a way forward. And this is a relatively interesting question, and... My thinking associated with it came back to this idea of what is the value in artificial life. I mean, we, we talk every other week about artificial life through the Biota podcast. There are obviously a number of researchers, um, you know, the world over academics who are doing things that either explicitly are artificial life or then into artificial life. We've had folks on uh, like uh, Ed Salford who works at Eli Lilly. I have another friend, uh, Duncan McRae, who I believe... He works for another pharmaceutical company, but basically mirroring what uh, Ed Salford does. Uh, they use artificial life primarily as search algorithms to troll through papers and, you know, work out how uh, researchers can spend their time more efficiently looking at chemical compounds. So there are all these kinds of uses of artificial life in industry in particular, which aren't being actively tracked. And, you know, there's almost kind of value slipping through the fingers of the academics and you know, folks who could be tailoring their artificial life or at least creating an artificial life community that was more inclusive. So I framed this discussion with Mark with the idea of, well, what is the value of artificial life and how can we start tracking the value of artificial life and then giving feedback to, uh, you know, for example, the, art the academics who are all independently currently do taking and giving artificial life courses with their favourite, you know, few papers involved, but nothing that's relatively unified. And similarly, folks such as Ed Salford, who, again, are, are grazing artificial life papers but don't have any kind of unified artificial life in industry, um, you know, magazine or component of the artificial life journal. And I put this back to Mark that really... You know, if I had some instigation with regards to the International Society of Artificial Life, I would move them into that kind of mindset where they were actually, you know, gathering information and building the artificial life community on this to... And I use Java as a good example. And I mean, this is a familiar example to you as well, Gerald. I mean, Java wasn't just created and put out there for, you know, the benefit of, uh, <laughs> you know, developers that wanted to pick it up. It was actually actively evangelized and actively nurtured and supported and you know there was a community that was built and nurtured around it and I really feel that that's lacking with the contemporary artificial life community so as I rave in my uh, usual hyperbole Gerald I mean does this make any sense to you? 
Yeah, although and I'm not sure you can really justifiably have that kind of expectation because, uh, you know, Java, for example, if you want to compare it, is, um, you know, something that a lot of stakeholders have, have an interest in for, for all sorts of uh, uh, survival of their own fittest uh, really reasons, you know, for the financial survival. You know, a lot of um, a lot of software is written to to run on the virtual machine, and, and all sorts of companies uh, have bet a whole bunch of their uh, resources on it. So it's it's a very different thing than uh, an artificial life, which is a bit of a um, currently at least a, a bit of a fringe phenomenon. Which is, but I mean, when Java started out, it was a relatively. I mean, the the very early days of Java without nurturing could have put it in the kind of, you know, ML or ADA or these, although ADA, you know, has its own following. But, I mean, it could have been one of those languages if it weren't for Sun's kind of immense, not only nurturing with regards to academia, but also nurturing with regards to industry. Yeah, and also their their approach to uh, openness, which started from the very beginning. They were involving uh, people in the, in, the, in, in the community with, you know, completely consciously from the beginning so uh, that has eventually had its effects it's interesting now by the way i was i was uh, at a get together last week uh, f- uh, explaining uh, that that was uh, involved a couple of presentations of web frameworks uh, both of them uh, running on the virtual machine the java virtual machine and um, there was uh, wicket and lift and uh, Wicked is a is a Java-based framework, which has become reasonably popular. And um, uh, Lyft is one written in Scala. And I don't know if you've looked at Scala, but that's a very, very interesting language. I'm really kind of tempted, since I learned Java by uh, writing the first uh, versions of, uh, of uh, what is now Darwin at Home, I'm sort of tempted to... Uh, press the pause button and, and rewrite the whole thing in Scala just to learn Scala. Anyway, it's a fascinating language because uh, it uh, came into existence in the, in the academic world and, and continues to, to grow there and hasn't really been accepted on a large scale in industry at all. But it's built to run on the Java virtual machine. It compiles to byte codes. It represents a very different kind of programming language because it mixes object orientation with, uh, with functional programming. What's and, the uh, spelling on the language specifically, Gerald, for people who are interested in, in researching it's, more? It's S-C-A-L-A, Scala. And uh, it's really uh, a fascinating mix of these two languages, and it was able to sort of develop itself separate, separate from industry. Um, and as a result, uh, it has uh, evolved very quickly independently. And, and now it actually represents... For a lot of people, uh, something that's probably the successor to Java eventually. But at the same time, at, the, at this moment, it's far too fringe to even consider for uh, the basis of a project because, uh, as usual, you would, no idea, you would have no idea where to find programmers for it, yeah. for example. And, um, you know, but, but what is happening is the, a lot of senior Java people are really seriously exploring it and, and uh, getting their, uh, their fingers dirty with it. So it's interesting. You know, these are, there have been you know, countless uh, programming, language invented, uh, programming languages invented in the academic world, and uh, they, they come and go or they, uh, they stay uh, you know, having their own meaning and their own little niche. But it's rare that something gets as large as, 
is uh, you know a Java or a C plus plus or something like that. Well, speaking of finding programmers for it, I'd like to welcome Peter Newman onto the call. Hello, Peter. Hello, Tom. I finally got here. It's wonderful to have you on. For folks not familiar, I mean, Peter has basically been maintaining the BIOS site for as long as I've been the editor. So the fact that you get these podcasts every other week is strictly down to Peter's hard work. So on a personal note, I'd like to thank you, Peter, for all that work. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so aside from maintaining the BIOS site, would you like to give an introduction to the BIOS community? Um, well, I... I can't really say I've been terribly active. Um, I've always just been interested. Uh, currently, I'm working with Bruce Damer on a first prototype of the uh, Biota Deep, uh, EvoGrid Deep, sorry. So many terms and I get them mixed up. <laughs> um, and they keep changing names. Yeah, so, I'm, no, I'm, I'm partially responsible for that. So, I mean, in terms of your work, would you like to give an introduction to your background work with Bruce and how you've moved forward to the EvoGrid now and what the EvoGrid currently looks like? Well, I work with Bruce uh, through DM3D Studios. Uh, we first started off just doing 3D visualization stuff for NASA, and then we started working on our own engine to do 3D visualization stuff for NASA, and um, tried to. we kept doing that for a while. And then at some point we sort of said, hey, why are we doing all this visualization stuff? What did we really get into the industry for? And we all sort of said, well, cool stuff like artificial life. And we went, okay, well, let's change directions a bit and go into this. And that's when we started on doing the Evo Grid. Um, after a bit of discussion, it got uh, into being um, the deep and the broad. Um, so we started work on the deep. Uh, let's see. So I should talk about where the, the Evo Grid deep currently is at. Um, at the moment, we're basically feeding semi-random data into a molecular dynamics simulator and um, working on being able to change that data and see what comes out. It's basically just a big option space exploration. And in terms of actually exploring the space, um, I'm not sure whether you heard Dick Gordon's early analysis about the the exploration of the space being the critical component of the EvoGrid in terms of locking in on kind of areas of greatest potential for the formation of life. Is this still part of your thinking? Oh, definitely. That's definitely right up there. It's um, the, the basic idea of the of the exploration because there's so much option space that we'd be here forever if we just tried to explore it in some linear fashion is basically to um, seed it with a couple of randomly selected points, do uh, basically a fitness analysis on it, you know, apply a number of heuristics to it to generate a range of scores based on things like uh, bond formation, um, temperature changes, that sort of thing. I, we haven't really decided exactly what yet. The system's going to be designed to be extendable. And then um, we will... Uh, what's the term I'm after? And then look at the neighbouring options by changing the options by a percent or less than a percent. Um, but create an estimate on what scores they would generate estimated based on the one that we have calculated and then prioritise the neighbours based upon their scores and then in that way just keep building a bigger and bigger list of neighbours that are prioritised so that the interesting ones with the higher scores are the ones that get simulated first. And Gerald, as you listen yeah. into this, what, what are your questions for Peter? Oh, well, it's, uh, it comes down to probably the main question, which is usually uh, how are you going to... Um, 
for how are you going to set up things to so that it doesn't appear that you're putting your own will into the into the system, which was something that William Buckley was talking about as well in uh, during the Bio podcast discussion with him. You know, you, the, the the big subtle uh, trick that we're all trying to accomplish is to uh, you know see something emerge and and then be able to say, look, I didn't do it. So how are you going to be able to say I didn't do it? Well, uh, it's one of the slightly interesting points. If you ask Bruce, you'll get one answer, but I have a slightly different. Oh, answer. if you ask Bruce, you'll get fifteen answers. <laughs> yeah, ain't that, that, ain't that the truth? Yeah. Ah, great guy, but. Sure, he thinks in a big picture. Um, basically, it's just that the different each. I mean, the problem is that we have to build the evaluation functions that you know we build, and that's why we, why we're looking build, building a number of them that we say like this was good because it had a lot of temperature variation, and this was good because it had a lot of um, structure. Um, and in terms that we're selecting for those attributes, it certainly could be argued that we are selecting to see what we want to see. Um, unfortunately, unless we just... Ex- I can't... Personally, I can't see any way to, to do that unless we explore just the entire option space and say, look, you know, hey, something arose here that we none of our functions said was likely to happen. It's, it is definitely a problem, and um, Bruce talks about having it running off dumps so that we're not touching the live simulation, so that we're not changing any variables while the simulation's happening, but I don't really see that being enough. Did you hear hear William R. Buckley's idea that basically you need something like Tierra with a much larger space? Ironically, um, 20 years of Tierra next year, so I've been asked to do various... uh, Biota Live celebrations associated with that, but that's an aside. I mean, William R. Buckley's vision was that you take something like Tierra, you seed it with random information, and then you just leave it. And, you know, you kind of go on and do, you, you know, your, your own whatever, leave it there simulating away, and after a year you kind of peek back in and hopefully you'll have some dominant kind of life form within that Tierra simulation. But if you don't, you just put it back down. I mean, I think the nature of grid computing currently is you could almost... Um, I don't know. I mean, when when Peter talked about changing things by just a percentage or a small percentage or, you know, a fraction of percentage, this fits in with your current developments associated with Darwin at home as well, Gerald, doesn't it, in terms of just tweaking little things and seeing how things change? Sure, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tweaking in that form. Sure, and um, uh, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't absolve you of the difficulty. <laughs> so, if you were to give yeah. feedback as a long-term artificial life simulator, Gerald, what would you give to Peter at this stage? Well, the thing is, uh, you know, the the, the Evo Grid Deep idea at the moment is um, is uh, a really tall order. You know, the idea. In, in in vague terms, is um, you know, let's see if we can see something that we didn't expect to see, and uh, you know, let's just uh, stir something up and see if we see the very very origins of life. And compared to my approach to simulation, where I'm basically saying, okay, let's assume this and this and this, and we'll go from here and see if we can get any further. Now, I think probably both are are legitimate approaches. Uh, it's just that um, 
if you know the, uh, the what you're just describing, just uh, set something random going and uh, see if you can detect some patterns after a while. Um, the problem I have with that is that it's like uh, uh, it's like computing for computing's sake, and it's a it's a big waste of literally energy. So if if you know if if, if this is happening in uh, a solar powered uh, computer somewhere in the Sahara Desert, then I'm okay with it because it can just sit there and compute itself silly for for a long time, and then we can go observe and see if we can find something. That's fine because it's all solar energy. But if you're going to uh, run a coal uh, energy station to uh, to drive your grid then I'm, I'm tempted to be a little more pragmatic and say, okay, let's make sure we're trying to do something, you know, in, unless, uh, you know, unless the scale of things is so small that it doesn't really matter or unless the computing becomes as inexpensive as William Buckley suggested it will become at some point that it's completely irrelevant. But how, if it, how about if it's spare processing power, like folding at home or these kind of things? Are you comfortable with that being utilized? Uh, it doesn't really help that much because uh, these, uh, you know, as well as I do, when you're when you're running an interesting program on a computer, the chip gets hotter and it consumes more power. And uh, you know, uh, people should be turning their machines off when they're not doing anything instead of letting them do sort of uh, you know something that's not useful. And on the other hand, of course, the if it is something like folding home or SETI at home, there is some uh, some purpose to it. But you you it's it's not like the energy is suddenly free. In fact, you could make a good case that an, uh, a grid computing solution uh, is, is, uh, has the potential of being, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient with respect to energy than uh, than all these, uh, you know, ad hoc manu- manufactured PCs with all their little overkill power supplies and whatever else. Every every PC is a bit of a you know, they didn't put a lot of attention into energy efficiency for a PC. So, you know, you have your magical network of of zillions of, of free PCs, but it still costs a lot of energy. So in terms of the vision of solar-powered artificial life, I mean, you have a beautiful view. You must get some sun in your office, Gerald. Have you thought about putting in solar paneling? Um, I'm, I have definitely thought about having a machine uh, uh, doing artificial life uh, activity while being powered by its own, you know, being completely independently powered by solar energy, but I haven't uh, taken any steps on that at the moment. I, you know, someday. Certainly. So, Peter, I want to cover a couple of other topics with you, but I mean, while we're still talking about your current developments in the Evo grid, in terms of the problems that you're currently facing, do you have any questions for, for Gerald or me in terms of, you know, the kind of brain trust of artificial life development that you have on the call currently? Um, well, the main issue I'm having at the moment is to is that I don't know enough about quantum physics. But uh, other than that, um, let me see, what was I thinking? Um, the, at the, current, well, the current stage is simply throwing random stuff together and waiting for something to happen. The next stage is to attack the rat, the plateauing problem where um, you know, simulations will evolve so far and then stop. And um, Bruce wants to ch- see if um, changing the simulation parameters will allow a new burst of um, 
evolution in the uh, creature simulation, and that's apparently the basis of his PhD, I believe. Um, the um, so, what do you guys think of that? I'll let Gerald go first, and then I'll give you my ideas. Um, I, what exactly? You know, could you be a little more specific? Um, well, I, the idea the idea being that, um, and I'm pretty sure you've seen that because I know I've seen the I've seen this in my little play um, toys. I haven't made anything serious that anyone's ever seen, but I have thrown together little toys of um, you know genetic algorithms and so forth. But after a while, they'll reach a plateau. They'll reach a um, an optimum fitness, and you're going, and they won't seem to go any further. From this point, every change is a is a poor change, so you're, um, the, they get selected right. again. Right. Basically, a local maxima, I believe. Isn't, isn't, this, uh, isn't this something that you, uh, like you're calling it the second phase, isn't it? Um, I mean, I thought the idea of the Evo Grid Deep was to see the emergence of anything from nothing. It's like, you know, the, the sort of the zero, uh, the zero case, zero going oh, to I... maybe infinitesimal. And 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 I, now I, you're talking about plateaus already. I, I, I haven't seen the launch yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. We haven't even gotten to the first stage, and we're already thinking about the second stage. I think it's a, one of those cases of uh, what we'd like to do versus uh, what we can get people interested in having us doing. Um, ideal, ideally, we just like to sit back, throw a bunch of random numbers at it, and you know, see life emerge from nothingness. Um, I believe Bruce is uh, selling the idea that they can, he can find a solution to this problem, that the problem is that simulations only get so far and then stop, and that he can come up with a solution that allows them to continue on further. A generalized um, solution, that sounds pretty good. I'm impressed. Mm, um, yes. So if I can throw in my... You, you've raised three points I'd like to discuss. With regards to Bruce specifically, my understanding is that he is purely talking about the vision of the EvoGrid currently, and the component associated with, as you say, selling the generalized solution. Certainly the feedback that he's received from me and Dick Gordon and a wide variety of his other advisors is that this takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of, of folk involved. So, I mean, that's what I'll say to that point. With regards to your point in terms of um, limits, this is something that you find with simulations. Um, I'm not sure the nature of the simulations that you're playing with but a number of simulations have both implicit and explicit limits that are intrinsically built into them, particularly when you're dealing with multi, um, you know, multi-particle problems and these kind of things. So I know you have access. I mean, I know this is all open source, and you have access to the source code. So you've probably been through it to try and find any explicit limits. But what you may be missing is actually the implicit limits which relate to just how the mathematics is constructed associating with simulating the components. So, I mean, that's feedback I'd give there. With regards to quantum mechanics, this is, I mean, my, uh, one of my degrees is in physics, and the thing that strikes me about quantum mechanics in particular is that we have considerably more a priori intuition with quantum mechanics than we give ourselves credit for. We're kind of indoctrinated with regards to hard, you know, atoms, um, you know, electrons, particle-related physics and that descriptor. I'm sure you probably have, um, you know, LED clocks, which you see uh, late at night, and you get this kind of fuzzy effect from LED clocks. Are you familiar with that, Peter? 
Um, vaguely, yeah. So this is the idea of the photon uh, as, as basically uh, an oscillating wave function. And as a physics student, um, probably second-year physics student, I asked a couple of the PhDs whether our eyes were actually receptive to pick up photons, and they agreed, and I've heard this from a wide variety of people, including uh, Australia's Dr. Carl, with regards to us actually being able to pick up photons. So if you think about the way you see a photon, this in fact is in some regard a representation of quantum mechanics in a very real way. It enables you to do young slits and all these other kind of things because you get a sense that you know, somewhere between the particle and the wave there's this kind of jelly thing which ultimately is what quantum mechanics is all about. So my thinking is that what you're talking about with regards to your own blocks in quantum mechanics relates to certain components in the algorithms that are in the simulations that you're using? Yeah, um, we're having to do... Uh, well, the, the original plan is that uh, we the molecular simulation tool that we're using doesn't do... Um, has static bonds. You set yeah. up the bonds initially at the beginning, the atoms are all bonded, and then um, those bonds do not change over time and that we figured that something that we would need to do is be able to change those bonds so that chemical reactions can occur. Um, and I don't know enough about under what conditions atoms will exchange electrons, and um, whenever I try to read the documentation on it, they go, oh, when you're thinking at it at this level, it doesn't make sense. You've got to go down to the quantum mechanics level, and there it all becomes clear, and I just go, oh, heck. So just think of it like jelly. I mean, that's exactly the point of the problem, that basically rather than having static bond links... It's in fact probably oscillating bond links where the oscillations actually you know, recreate or find the joining. And ironically, this is where Gerald comes in because that's basically what his, uh, you know, Darwin at home creatures do. I mean, they're basically, you know, tensegrities are effectively oscillating bonds. So if you could hybridize, you know, some of Gerald's abstract kind of tensegrity classes, you may actually have what you need. I mean, what you're trying to do is just oscillate the bonds to find optimized for ideal connections. That's basically what you're looking for, isn't it? Um, not exactly. Um, because we've got, you know, we've got a cloud of particles flying around, and just the idea is, is that when certain particles are in certain conditions towards each other, a bond will be created. I mean, that was <laughs> my thinking of it. Um, and it, it really comes, I understand the idea that, you know, that, that some junk, that some connections will be better and some won't, and that you'll create the connection under the ideal conditions and so forth. I just don't know what sort of parameters there are to those conditions that are relevant or not. My initial thought was purely distance, and then um, I'm thinking is, is relative velocity a factor and all those sorts of things. Well, the issue with regards to distance is very interesting because ultimately what you're trying to do is actually get that connection no matter what length, you know, is, is right. I mean, within a certain realm, obviously, you don't want them, like, connecting, you know, across simulated rooms and these kind of things. But, I mean, my feeling is that just by allowing for a variable length distance that when these things came in certain proximity, they were either drawn or repelled, uh, and these things were variables that you put into the simulation, you'd actually get the kind of effects that you want. I mean, certainly the vision of the Evo grid that, uh, you know, Bruce, Dick Gordon, Gerald and I have discussed in the past relates to the idea of potential as opposed to, you know, actually the way things go in the physical world. Although I think with this varying bond length idea, you'd probably be pretty close to what's actually occurring in the physical world as well. 
I mean, that's what Indeed. optimization is about. That's the whole notion of, you know, things fitting into wells and energy levels is just basically them finding the right distance to combine. I think, uh, I think one, of the, one of the main difficulties, and I keep coming back on this, is the notion of proximity, because um, I think it's a, a very expensive calculation when you don't, you know, and you're not allowed to uh, enjoy the advantages of real quantum mechanics and you have to simulate it, uh, or, you know, a, a real mechanics of any kind. <laughs> Proximity is the big issue. Of course, the, the game of life solves this by uh, by having an implicit connectivity. So things are connected based on their actual addresses in uh, in space. So I would think uh, if an evil grid would also have to have a, a vast kind of implicit connectivity, just like the game of life does, and, uh, but then maybe in, in a different number of dimensions uh, or something. Some, another point I wanted to uh, come back on here is, is this idea of plateauing and um, you know, being concerned about that. I, on the one hand, I would, uh, I would sort of uh, add a warning to say, don't be too worried about plateaus because I haven't yet seen a horse that can run 250 kilometers an hour. You know, uh, there, there are plateaus that are inherent, uh, and uh, it's not uh, it's not a cardinal sin to have a, to have a plateau of, of a whole number, a whole bunch of different kinds. You know, something that uh, the Ibergrid Deep, if you have to take care of um, maintaining, you know, information about proximity. In other words, uh, for if you've got n particles, then you've got a, a good number of potential connections between them, the, the amount of information and the amount of uh, storage necessary and the amount of calculation necessary to keep uh, track of the proximity really you know, gets out of hand very quickly. So uh, again, I'd like to uh, look more at solutions resembling the game of life in a sense uh, where the connectivity is implicit. You just have quantized space as well, fundamentally, too, aren't you, Gerald? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the thing that comes to mind, actually, when I'm sort of uh, you know thinking about what what might be done to do some uh, simulation of this kind, is um, something that comes from Buckminster Fuller. He um, Fuller had this uh, he named this thing uh, which he, which he called the uh, isotropic vector matrix. It sounds pretty uh, pretty expensive, but um, what it actually amounts to is uh, uh, closest packing. So if you uh, if you take ten thousand uh, tennis balls and you uh, toss them into a into a big uh, box, you'll see that they uh, they sort of self-organize into a closest packing pattern, where each uh, each ball is surrounded by twelve others. And there will be anomalies in this, of course, but in general, the sections of it close back, just like uh, stacks of oranges at the supermarket. And if you go, if you have a, a, a matrix that uh, consists of relationships between the centers of the oranges at the supermarket, you know, then, then you've got this really lovely pattern made of tetrahedrons and octahedrons, and it fills space, of course. And um, since, you know, if you, if you assume that the tennis balls or the oranges all have exactly the same diameter, then, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's isotropic in the sense that all the, um, all the distances between the, the things you're talking about are identical. So it's, uh, it's actually, you know, 12, 12 neighbors to every, uh, every particle. 
And um, there are ways to address memories such that uh, all these uh, vast numbers of relationships among adjacent you know, nodes are uh, implicit, so you don't have to record them, you don't have to worry about them. And you'd get pretty good carbon chemistry out of that kind of mapping too, wouldn't you, Gerald? Yeah, you'd get uh, certain uh, kinds of chemistry. I mean, not necessarily carbon specifically, uh, but, uh, you know, certain things can uh, can emerge from that, I, I believe, uh, depending on what you do. I mean, it, it's still, you know, I, I haven't been specific yet at all. If you're thinking in terms of, uh, of the game of life, then uh, why don't we just consider each one of these nodes to be a bit? So it's either one or zero, and uh, and its next state will be based on the state of its neighbors, you know, something like something like that. I'm sure that's been done, by the way. I, I haven't looked it up, but I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could go further than that. I mean, the, the thing that actually came to mind that, I would, uh, that I, I, I'm interested in exploring is the idea, like, just imagine that you've got this uh, isotropic vetric, vetric vector matrix where every, um, every node is connected to 12 nodes around it, and they're all at equal distance from it, just like close packing. But you allow for some um, perturbance of this matrix, so it can actually, uh, you know, no longer be crystalline rigid. But you you can actually move all the nodes around. But they also have to sort of move in 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 concert. In other words, you you make the the relationships between nodes sort of like an elastic interval, so that you know if one of them moves and it pulls all of its neighbors or pushes them uh, in that direction, they can they can diverge from the absolutely perfect length that they originally had, but not all that much. You know, the more they diverge, the more uh, force they uh, they apply against uh, the uh, the difference, and. Um, the, the the fun thing about thinking this way is that if you imagine every node to have an address in space, initially the uh, the addresses would be uh, you know completely uh, implicit, so you know exactly where everything is based on what its name is. Um, but if you were to diverge from that, then all you would have to do is record the the difference between where you should have been and the different and the place you are now. So you can have sort of like a, a matrix that is capable of, of uh, squeezing and, and, you know, uh, it's a bit malleable rather than being so crystalline. And uh, that, that kind of idea is something that I've been playing around in my mind every once in a while when, uh, when I'm in the train or something. Do you have Java classes or something like that that, that show this that you can pass on to Peter? I haven't got that yet. No, I, I haven't actually written anything uh, in this regard. I'd, I'd like to uh, play around with it sometime, for sure. But, uh, you know, the nice thing about it, what I'm always thinking as well is, is in terms of data compression. You know, if you, you, the more you can um, express things concisely in, in as few bits as possible, the better. So if, if everything has sort of a, an implicit location and you only, uh, you only have to record how it diverges from the implicit location, you automatically, uh, you know, find yourself saving a lot of storage space and stuff like that because you only have to talk about perturbances rather than uh, rather than you know absolute positions does that make sense peter yeah um it's a certainly uh, it's an interesting idea and um in interestingly it's very similar to the one that bruce had initially bruce wanted to basically slap everything down in a flat array and have um the 12, dimen 12 links between them on all the cardinal directions and so forth. Um, his idea was that these would be semi, that they would be 
the links would be static and that um, there would be multiple particles per nexus, per vertices or pool, as he called them. Um, and I didn't, and I didn't feel that that would closely simulate real um, real world physics enough because he does and he's constantly repeating the idea that someday in the future, far, far future, that this simulation will allow us to produce real-world objects, very small, swim in a little beaker of fluid. Or if you watch the video that got posted recently, take over parts of England. That was a little disturbing. Um, so <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. That was the greatest vision I'd seen with regards to the Evo grid yet. I was actually I, thinking I was of putting really it in the bio to feed. So I was a little disturbed because they sort of seemed to escape. It wasn't like they were just like let out in controlled circumstances. They escaped, and it's like, oh dear, because you know that's what happens. You, if they, there's a hole in your algorithm somewhere, the um, evolving life will find it and exploit it to advantage, and that always happens. And now I'm like, oh dear, should I do do this? Someone someday, someone might use my work to create that grey goo. Um, but I'll keep getting paid and keep doing it anyway. Very much and so. That's the nature of pure evil. We'll put a disclaimer on the side that we accept no no warranty implied or um and what is it in the GPL? There's no warranty. That's actually going to be our topic in two weeks' time, um, based on uh, nationalism and artificial life from the uh, Wired for War book that discusses uh, iRobot and iRobot's use in the military. So I think that's a topical artificial life to- topic. So if I can change direction just a, a little bit here, Peter, I mean, one of the projects that um, I've looked at recently that uh, excited me in a particular way and also excited you was OpenSim. And I think for artificial life simulators, this really is a no-brainer because it removes ourselves from, you know, the standard traps associated with visualization and having to, you know, create a rich visual environment that then has to be rendered, that then has to be maintained, that then has to be ported out on, you know, Mac, Windows, Linux, et al., and the vision of OpenSim caught me in particular because it, it carries on this narrative of avatars that Biota originally started with. And I think you had a similar vision with regards to it. Would you like to talk a little bit about OpenSim and your own development associated with it? Ah, yes. Um, it's actually funny that you mentioned it about the, the problems of create uh, that OpenSim sidesteps a lot of the problems of creating a platform and porting it and so forth because that's what my job was until relatively recently was working on the digital space engine and it was supposed to do a lot it was intended to do a lot of what um, the open versions of Second Life have now just stepped up and done so we kind of missed the boat there but um, let's see OpenSim is a if you've used Second Life it's you know basically it's a fairly generally trite game where you can walk around and talk to people and there's not a whole lot to do it's all user generated but um, what OpenSim is is someone they uh, basically reverse engineered the product there's actually no code from the original in OpenSim it's all been created from scratch and um, it's, it's the idea of the server public. world, isn't it? I mean, basically what you're doing is creating a server that people with existing uh, Second Life clients can log into and interact with as if they were logging into Second Life, but it is, in fact, your own creator server environment. That's right. Um, you can use either the existing Second Life client, one of the many uh, variants, because the Second Life client has been open-sourced and there's a number of groups that take it and apply their own um, changes to it that they feel are improvements. Um, generally are. The 
main advantage being, of course, is that you don't have to. That you you get a world for free. You grab this software, you put it on your machine. You you don't even have to compile it. It comes pre-compiled, um, and because it's the platform it runs on, it'll run on everything. And then you have you know you have a world. You have a, you start off with a space, and it's like two fifty six meters by two fifty six meters, and it's just there. And it basically costs you you know an afternoon worth of setting it up. And then it all the code there, it's all like being open source and it has um, allowances for plugins and so forth. So you can very quickly throw together your own module and load it in and um, have it do pretty much anything. And the thing that interested me, and this goes back to an early Biota podcast with a fellow called Douglas Davis, is the ability, I mean, my own view with regards to you know, having an overlaid um, environment through OpenSim was that the player or the, the the person, the human interacting with the simulated environment would appear as a noble ape and have the same interactions with the simulated noble apes as if, you know, as if it was a noble ape. The simulated noble apes see it as another noble ape and interrogate it and do various things to the player as if they were a noble ape and the player can respond to them and interact with the environment in a very kind of personal level. I mean, the, the added interest is if you have multiple humans in a simulated environment with simulated entities, you know, how does this actually work as well? I think there are a number of layers to um, to this interface that really caught me. And in terms of debugging, I mean, this is the thing that I really get out of, like, long-term simulation of Noble Ape and tweaking Noble Ape to particular environments is that I get a huge amount of feedback in terms of the, the bugs and the simulated interaction, which refine my own thoughts. I mean, Peter, as you as you looked at OpenSim, it immediately gelled with you that there was artificial life potential in this environment too, didn't it? Oh, that's right. Yeah, in fact, that was part of why I started looking at it in the first place. That I was, um, well, I've got you know a number of ideas, and I thought, hey, you know, I could do. I'd already thought, can I do these on Second Life on the real official Second Life servers? Um, but then there's a free server, and it's like, hey, I can put this on at home and do it myself. But the other thing with regards to the Second Life servers is that they've been relatively hostile associated with creating artificial life. I mean, we have Jeffrey Ventrella, who really is, you know, almost founding father of certain aspects of the community. Certainly Aquarius artificial life, I mean, he he is, you know, the founding father with regards to aqueous environments and artificial life. And I think he has a long legacy in terms of developing both, you know, walkers and swimmers and you know, cellular automata, and he's exploring gliders currently. And he went over to Linden Labs. I mean, this is taking, you know, a brilliant mind from the artificial life community and putting it into Linden Labs. And from that interaction, they weren't able to actually create an artificial life environment for a wide variety of factors. And certainly I've worked with two other teams who have worked external to Linden Labs but tried to bring artificial life into Linden Labs. And my sense of the problem is that Linden Labs has never you know, never really kind of grok to use the, the Damarian term, what artificial life can actually do in these kind of environments. Now, the beauty, as you describe OpenSim, is it's a relatively small environment for you to play with. Uh, Gerald, I mean, as we talk about this, do you imagine people logging into a, a kind of Darwin at home environment through a Second Life client? Does that make sense to you? I think it's an excellent approach to um, to uh, playing around with some artificial life, simply because uh, one of my main uh, focuses is that things be very accessible and uh, 
people already have single uh, second life clients and if you can work within that environment you've already got something that's very accessible and can reach a lot of people um, on the other hand uh, I can understand uh, Linden Labs uh, concerns because uh, as you well know uh, any, any sort of real artificial life if it's not just uh, totally pretend is um, you know compute intensive and they can't afford to have that on their servers because their servers are serving you know, fairly large numbers of people at the same time so an open sim approach is really the only option because then you have a free hand to do whatever you want aside from you know what the what the server's already doing you should be able to sort of slip some of your own code in there and uh, and not worry so much about uh, you know having uh, too many users at the same time initially and stuff like that. I think it's an excellent uh, approach. I would love to eventually realize um, uh, at least a, a rendering of uh, evolved Darwin at Home creatures in, in Second Life, and OpenSim seems to be a good approach for that. One of the people I'm having uh, at the Graytham meeting is a, is a real uh, Second Life uh, sort of uh, star. She does, uh, she does uh, cinema, uh, machinima. In Second Life, she's recorded a number of films, so she's fairly familiar with. The, you know, she's actually very familiar with the whole community and uh, and Open Sim and and even tweaking up the client because, of course, it's open source. And uh, for the purposes of making the films, she had to sort of be at the the absolute bleeding edge of uh, of the open source of the open source client. So they um, put in these sort of. Uh, uh, you know, bleeding edge plugins to have uh, lips move according to audio, you know, just to make the movie uh, something that doesn't look old too quickly because this sort of stuff is not yet in the second life. They have to sort of be ahead of the curve, which is really interesting. So they're, they're really on the cutting edge of what you can do with the client and with the server. Certainly. And returning to the original topic of this podcast, I mean, my great concern with regards to setting up a, a Noble Ape, you know, OpenSim server, or even better, a Biosia Eve OpenSim server, is that I would never, it would completely eliminate my day job in terms of the amount of work that it would require in terms of bug fixes and things like that. It would almost not be a hobby as soon as we got a certain number of users. And this is the thing that really concerns me, that these things you know, will generate so much feedback in such a short period of time that it is, in fact, completely, uh, could, in fact, be completely overwhelming for us as artificial life developers. Returning to the idea of finding value in artificial life, if we had, you know, if we had, for example, a, um, you know, a Darwin at Home OpenSim server that grew buildings for the link back to your, you know, your work with the architecture film, a uh, firm, rather, do you think this is something, Gerald, that they could utilize and would this make artificial life more real to them in terms of your own work being you know of some degree of financial benefit to them does that make sense to you well you know on the one hand uh, i i'm i'm i can completely echo what you were saying that it would be potentially a, a vast amount of work for for a hobbyist and i've been able to keep things in my project under control because um because I've been very uh, extremely, uh, you know, humble on the on the graphics end, and and trying to, uh, you know, to keep the model as as uh, as absolutely trivial as possible, so that uh, so that it can compute really quickly. And if you're uh, if you have to surrender yourself to a, a bunch of uh, potentially solid limitations of of an open sim server. It's you, you spend a lot of time, uh, uh, you know, working working out those, those working through those limitations. 
Um, on the other hand, of course, uh, the the ability to just have a, a ready-made client where people can uh, be familiar with, uh, you know, with, with established ways of navigating that people are familiar with, with uh, you know, it's it's a way to say, uh, look what I've got, and then everybody just takes a tour of it rather than having to, uh, you know, introduce them to all sorts of new things at the same time. So I think it, it could be, you know, very useful at least as a as a a spring uh, jumping board to get into the to get into it more because it's just so accessible and and you can probably create some impressive stuff very quickly and peter is the only one on the call who's currently being paid to create artificial life or at least artificial chemistry in terms of things like OpenSim and these kind of tools how do you see people actually getting jobs in artificial life into the future well, that's, that's an interesting one because, uh, well, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to head off into too much of a direction, but a lot of people got into Second Life thinking they could get a job there, that doing things in Second Life would lead to singing, playing music, building things for people would become an income and become a job, and it's worked out for a very, very, very small portion of those people. There are one or two successes, some I know personally, who make a reasonable living doing things in Second Life, but there's a lot of people who haven't. Um, and I think that artificial life might go in a similar way. It has already. I mean, let's be clear here. <laughs> you you yeah. are probably the only person I could name off the top of my head, aside from Bruce Damer, and he doesn't really make a living from doing stuff with artificial life. I mean, I think the community, there are a small number of people that do things related to artificial life that make a living through it, but the hobbyist community actually represents probably the greatest number of people who could I mean, people like Jeffrey Ventrella, for example, make a living if the, the terms were there. But really, the purpose of this recording this evening was just to start to talk about how this idea of value emerges from something like artificial life. So what are your thoughts on that, Peter? I would like to say that, yes, this is going to change the world. Um, I mean, that's you know my personal feeling that at some point something will happen and it will be obvious to everyone that... Um, I cannot see a way there, and I don't see um, even OpenSim and similar things. I don't see that immediately for being yes, this is the missing link. If that sort of answers the question. Yes, I mean I tried to offer a blueprint in the start of the show with regards to my own thinking about how we can move towards some kind of greater sense of value. And the first part is really doing a surveying of all the uses of artificial life and working out how the artificial life community can strengthen these uses and assist folk who are who are doing these things, which you know then filters back into the community. But isn't it, isn't it true that like there's a there's a value in in the effort in general? I mean, we're uh, on the one hand you're you're focusing on a number of very uh, challenging uh, concepts with respect to how you know life emerged. So you're you're, you're uh, it's a it's a it's an approach to computer science that's uh, you know being trying to be inspired by uh, by you know natural evolution and what happened in in the real world, and it, it's just you know it's a direction uh, more than uh, more than it's uh, that more than it's going to be a value in the sense of you know look at the results they're valuable it's 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 valuable as a as a sort of an intellectual direction. 
And um, who knows, you know, after it could take a century of, uh, of playing around and, or, you know, 50 years or something. And then we may have an entirely, entirely different form of computing, something based on quantum mechanics or something like, you know, there's, there have already been some efforts in quantum computers. So maybe it's at that point that it turns out to be something useful. You know, there are things in, in history that despite our uh, being accustomed to the high speed, uh, you know, 21st century, things like uh, complex numbers were invented and, and uh, sussed out completely long before they were useful because, you know, uh, complex numbers became useful when electronics came around. So that was hundreds of years later. It may be that working in this direction is going to teach us a lot and then uh, eventually we will, uh, for a completely different reason, come up with a tool that uh, that makes it all possible to, to realize some things. So, you know, don't hold your breath, but it might take a half century. Certainly. Yeah, I'd, sorry, I'd just like to add that um, it reminds me a lot of the space race, that a lot of people say, well, what did that ever do for us? We got to the moon, we put some people on the moon, we raised a little flag and flew on home, and then what? And yet there's a lot of technologi- just technological advances that are taken for granted that were as a result of this um, thing that didn't achieve anything, and yet all the spin-offs, have carried on into everyday life. Yeah, and there's also this uh, this uh, valuable concept I thought of uh, of Buckminster Fuller's called precession. What he talks about, it's really a fascinating idea. If you read some, I think Tom, you would be interested in in what he says about this. Um, the idea is that it's it's analogous to spinning a bicycle wheel. You know, you push it in one direction and it responds by going in 90 degrees to that direction when you, when you push on push on the axis. And this sort of in a in a metaphorical way, when you when you put in a lot of effort in in a particular direction and you really focus on it and you, you really flesh it out, you may discover something at completely orthogonal to it, completely ninety degrees that you know you would have never encountered if you hadn't made this trip anyway. So it's you know we're looking for emergence here. Well, we might just find emergence in our own ideas. Certainly, and. Finishing up the show this evening, Peter, how do people find your work? How do people get in contact with you? My work, my current work is on uh, evogrid.org. Uh, my past work's on digitalspace.com. Um, you can put www in front if you really like. Um, the thing with evogrid.org is it's now a wiki as well, isn't it? That's right. We just put that, got that running in the last week or two. It's still missing a bit of content, but um, that's something I'm going to be doing this week is spending some time fleshing out the missing gaps in that. It's also, I mean, I think the community can actively contribute to that as well. I've certainly been on the side and moved Gerald from the UK to the Netherlands um, only in the past couple of days and done various other things, put in links and, you know, more background information, particularly with regards to the audio. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that the community can actively contribute to it. I mean, the interesting thing for me, and this is really the visions of the Evo Grid, is the idea that Bruce, in his kind of role as a kind of wandering, I don't know, technology renaissance man, has actually, you know, it's the people that have communicated with Bruce as much as Bruce is himself that's really constructed the modern Evo Grid. And certainly um, when I listen, and I'm not sure if you've heard the private audio as well, Peter, but when I listen to a lot of the private audio conversations that Bruce has had, through his travels, this gives me a sense that there's so much more in terms of the descriptive Evo grid that something like the the wiki could actually be used to uh, 
to kind of distill, and particularly because text search is still the primary way that people find information on the internet, it'd be fascinating to, you know, start getting people coming to the Evo grid purely through text search alone. Indeed, I keep um, nudging Bruce to try to put some more uh, stuff into text and make it more readily available, but he um, is always on the next idea. And well, I think that's, that that's means... really the nature of the narrative with Bruce. I mean, this is another reason I did the visions, is to get other voices in and actually see, you know, the amount of refining work that Bruce does in terms of his presentations. I mean, he will meet with, you know, between five and two dozen people in between each of the presentations, and every one of them perturbs him slightly. Um, anyway, look, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the call this evening. And certainly, I mean, don't be a stranger. Please participate in, in all means necessary. And it's wonderful not having you just maintaining the biota site, but also as an active part of the biota community. Well, now that I know it's actually not at a crazy American time, I can actually take part. <laughs> well, it's at a crazy American time and a crazy, uh, crazy European time as well. And speaking of that, Gerald, it's always a pleasure to have you on the call. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to what's going to occur in uh, in two weeks' time with regards to um, you know the next race on Netherlands. Do you think you'll be able to audio record or video record some of it? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm going to try, uh, and I'm not sure exactly what to record. I mean, uh, audio might be good enough. Uh, we'll see. But I, I definitely want to record something and put it online. I mean, if you could just record people giving introductions. I mean, you know, preferably in English, and just giving a sense. I mean, I think all your stuff to date has been recorded in English, um, and just that kind of audio is always useful in terms of just getting a sense of the kind of broader you know, the broader group of people that actually attend these Grayson meetings. Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, the first time we're sort of sitting around a table rather than uh, sitting in, in, uh, in chairs facing one direction at a, at a presentation. So I think it's going to be an environment that will lend itself more to, uh, to that kind of thing. Very good, very good. And in two Fridays' time, we are going to be discussing artificial life and nationalism, a rather darker topic in some regard, but also a great opportunity for me to play the uh, 4th of July Biota Live theme, which I have squirreled away on my hard disk from the last 4th of July. Gerald, Peter, pleasure talking with you both, and thanks to the, the listening audience for listening in once again. Nice talking, Tom.